Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and, and uh, verse 4. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 5. <clears throat> Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's a simple verse and it follows it in logical turn from uh, the first beatitude there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And now it's blessed are the meek. And they describe, the Beatitudes describe to us, don't they, what the Christian man or woman, boy or girl, is at heart. Uh, There are no options here. If we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, then we are, first and foremost, those who have, uh, who are, I'm sorry, poor in spirit. We are most of all those who mourn their sin. And what is more, we are meek. And on and on the text reads. Everything that we read here in these Beatitudes, these immediate ones, but they go on, of course, right through to chapter 9, I think it is. All of these things, these descriptions of the quality of the Christian heart and the mind are all undoubtedly diametrically opposed to a worldview. The world scoffs at those who are poor in spirit. It scoffs at those who mourn. It scoffs. We are not, the Christian church is not, I'm sorry, not the Christian church, but the Christian people within the church are not politically correct. They can't be. Many try to be politically correct and by their confession they show that there is something lacking. If we went out into the street, excuse me, tomorrow, and asked people in the street, who is it that's going to inherit the earth? And they will react variously, I guess, but never in their thought will be that the meek will inherit the earth. The ones that seem to inherit the earth today are those who are the strongest, the most outspoken, the most belligerent, the most politically powerful. And the Christian church today has lost its influence in the world. Yet the scripture, Jesus Christ himself, tells us here, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Simply reminds us, and I want us to consider this, it simply reminds us just what the men and women, men and women of God are intrinsically in the eyes of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have seen 
their utter helplessness to come to God in any way. They've seen their sin for what it is. It separates us from God. And they've cried out, Lord, help me. They are those whom God sees as poor in spirit. And having come to faith in Jesus Christ, they are then brought to that point where they mourn their sin. But we're really sorry as God's people for the sin that lies within. Or do we enjoy it in the secret of our hearts and our minds? When we come to faith, we're told elsewhere in the scriptures that we are made new creatures in Jesus Christ. We're reminded that the old man or the old woman, that man and woman of sin, has been removed and God has replaced and done work inside the heart that changes their worldview, if you like. That worldview that once denied the Lord of all. Or if, if, it's, if it accepted that there was a God then that God will do what I want. And much of the evangelical church in the Western world today says, Lord, I need this and I want that. It says to God, I want to be wealthy, I want to be healthy, and if I'm these things, then you must be pleased with me because you're blessing me. That's the way it works in the, in the, in the wider evangelical Christian church in the Western world today. And it's not the gospel of grace and peace. It says, yes, we believe in Jesus Christ. That's not a problem. But he failed when he came to earth and he needs our help. Just... Uh, I haven't followed it uh, since we left Somerville uh, three years ago. But about five years ago, some people, uh, a wide number of people, they had a sp spokesperson. Uh, they had decided that uh, there was no longer any need for Jesus Christ to return because the Christian church itself could establish the church on earth. Now, it was a Pentecostal type of church. Uh, or background and uh, uh, of course um, dispensational theology teaches us in part that Christ failed to establish his kingdom on earth that's why he's got to come back and so they've taken this notion one step further and said there's no need for Jesus Christ to return the church can plant the church on earth God's people can plant the church on earth but where does it say that in the scriptures what we can do is sow the seed. That's all we're asked to do. It's no gospel of grace when we add something to Jesus Christ. It's no gospel of salvation when we put a work of our own, no matter how good or right it might be, to the work of on the cross of Jesus Christ. He established his kingdom. He rose as a king. He is our prophet and our priest and our king. And he's that today. It remains that he return and sum up all things. A new heaven and a new earth.
we've considered what it is to be poor in spirit and what it is to mourn. And we can, if we know the Lord in a genuine sense, we can say with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul was probably the greatest Christian that has walked the face of the earth. Certainly the greatest apostle, if we want to measure it. And yet he acknowledges his indwelling sin. He's preached the gospel. He's been stoned and left for dead and all sorts of things. And uh, um, he's in prison. And he knows he's going to die. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So there's something else going on here. If Paul is one who is poor in spirit, and he certainly was, if he knew the sting of sin, and he certainly does, or did, he still cries out to the Lord through faith, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's what it is to mourn our sin. We can't say that we are without sin. First John chapter 1 verse 8 to 9 and 10 reminds us of this problem of indwelling sin. To be meek is far more searching. To be meek is to admit something about ourselves, isn't it? When people criticise us, and this is where the rub comes, if people criticise us, we get up in arms. If they judge us, we get upset, if I can put it in slightly stronger language. We much prefer to be critical of ourselves, don't we? Because we can justify ourselves. So what it is to be meek. We all think we're meek, don't we, if we're honest. But as Christians, that new man or that new woman, that new young person, made renewed in the spirit and the image of Jesus Christ for eternity, are we truly meek before Almighty God? We resent people judging us and yet God has judged us and even his, his people he says I'm going to judge you but we need not fear the judgment because our sin is forgiven God is going to judge us and we think yeah well that's okay nobody else is going to know about it but that's not what the scripture says either is it it reminds us that our sins will be known. But in Christ, then forgotten about. Who's a meek person? Consider Abraham. Uh, meekness or humility was a great characteristic of his life. He was a, a humble man by nature. Part of his personal character personal being 
But consider his conduct in relationship to Lot. Remember the, uh, Abraham said, Lot, we've got to separate. There's too many of us. You go one way, I'll go the other, but you choose where you want to go. And Lot thought, I'm going to take the best. He took the greenest pastures, the greenest side of the, of the river, as it were. And Abraham, what did he do? He didn't argue. He didn't want a piece of the, the lush pastures. He took his family and everything that he possessed and left Lot. But Lot, in his arrogance and in his pride and self-centeredness, he took what he considered to be the best. He chose the world. And so often we're like that. We choose the world. But Abraham, without murmur, without argument, without complaint, consider Moses. Numbers chapter 12 describes Moses, the most humble man on all the earth. Moses had a lowly concept of himself, and yet he was involved vitally, not only in the Egyptian administration and in the uh, court of Pharaoh, but he also went on to become vitally involved in the Hebrew nation as its leader. He was a man who was steeped in all the education of Egypt, and at a human level, the world was laid at his feet. He was a prince. In other words, he would probably become a pharaoh. But God spoke to his heart. And he effectively said, Lord, not my will, but yours. That's meekness. He saw the futility of the Egyptian religious worldview and turned to the only one who could rescue him from his own sin that gnawed at his heart that's meekness consider King David especially in his relationship with Saul now David uh, uh, at a, in his personal character and his uh, humility and Meekness wasn't one of the characteristics that stands out in this man's life. As a young man, what did he do? He's the one who picked up a stone or two in his sling and went out and took on Goliath. And for a young man, a young boy, that's got nothing to do with the personal characteristic of humility and meekness. We might say it's stupidity on one hand, but certainly brave. David knew that he would be king. He'd been called, he'd been anointed, and told that he would become king of Israel. And yet the first king that Israel had was Saul. And Saul set about ridding Israel of David and failed. But by the other token, on the other hand... David had enormous opportunity after his calling and his anointing to take the life through his own hand, take the life of Saul so that he could go to the throne. And David lived in caves, if you remember. He was driven out of Jerusalem. 
and away from society. And in his heart he said, Lord, your will, not mine. When things go wrong in our own lives, what do we say? Ah, Where are you, you, Lord? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? How many times have we seen in the paper in the last few years, in the press, people blaming God for the bushfires or the floods? One branch of the Christian church, uh, after the bushfires there a few years ago, um, east of Melbourne, stood up in public and said that was God's judgment on the Victorian government for removing the laws on regarding abortion. If God wanted to punish the government for making that decision, why does he take the life, allow the lives of innocents, relatively speaking, to be injured? See the futility of it. Are those people out there in those bushfires more sinful than anybody else that they deserved a particular punishment? Uh, Many of you here were flooded, as many were in Rochester, where we hail from. Were those people more sinful than anybody else who did not get flooded? No. But what's our attitude when these things come? For those who don't suffer these things, we stand by and watch and observe and we can feel a sense of guilt because it didn't happen to us. Or we can shake our fist at God. Or can we, are we prepared on these occasions, whether it's natural disasters or serious illness, are we prepared to say, Lord, your will, I don't understand it, Your will, not mine. Consider Stephen, one of the uh, first deacons. He was stoned. What what were his last words? He's down on the ground in the dust. And he said, Lord, forgive them. That's meekness. Or the prophet Jeremiah, he complained bitterly to the Lord because he wasn't a public speaker. He complained to the Lord, why me, who am I? I can't speak. The Lord got angry with him. He said, Jeremiah, I knew you before you were born. Before you were even conceived, I knew you. And I set you apart before you were conceived to be my prophet. Well, eventually Jeremiah says to the Lord, well, not my will, but yours. And he went on to become a prophet who suffered dreadfully. Because he said to the Lord, your will, not mine. That's meekness. He took out and and administered a task that he didn't want to do. Because every time he opened his mouth, or it seems that way, he suffered bitterly. The supreme of Kant's, of, of, um, supreme example, of course, is that of Jesus Christ. He's the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And yet, in, when we come to passages like Luke chapter 22, 
Just let me read you a verse. He wasn't real comfortable with this notion of going to the cross. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. And the cup being everything surrounding God's judgment on humanity for its sin. Christ was taking all of that upon himself. Separation from God the Father, the literal punishment and banishment from the very presence of God. God turned his back on him. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ was God. He could have snapped his fingers, so to speak, and ended it all there in the garden. Yes, then he would have failed. But he was God. He was perfect and conformed to his own character and his own will and his own purposes. And his purposes ultimately are your salvation and mine. Take this cup from me. In our own suffering, in our own personal concerns and, uh, and circumstances from time to time, are we prepared to utter in our hearts the examples of these folk who have gone before us so I suppose there are some things that we might say about meekness first of all that it's not a matter of natural disposition it's something produced in us by the Holy Spirit Uh, the man or the woman outside of salvation in Jesus Christ that is without faith saving faith cannot be meek towards God cannot utter meekness before the Lord unless they are particularly called by him to confess their sin many Christians are easy going many Christians sit and don't speak at meetings and all the rest of it there's nothing wrong with that but it's part of their natural disposition but it's not the meekness that we're talking about here in Matthew 5 some might consider meekness to be the equivalent of niceness or peacefulness or gentleness but that's not what is being taught here Meekness follows our the, the biblical position of being poor in spirit. It follows on from the from the biblical disposition of mourning our sin. See, unless we know by faith Jesus Christ, we cannot know our sin. You talk about sin in the world in the community. Generally speaking, uh, it'll uh, it'll have some concept of what sin is, but it'll laugh at it. It can't acknowledge it because God has never touched the heart that they recognize what sin is. It's not biological. It's not genetic. But the meekness here that's spoken of is a meekness that can be compatible with great strength and character and courage. And it takes courage at times, doesn't it, to speak up for the Lord. It can be compatible with great authority and great power. A meek person in the biblical sense 
is one who, who stands for the truth in Jesus Christ and prepare, being prepared to die for it. The martyrs of old uh, were meek, and yet they were powerful. Their testimonies spoke. I remember reading, uh, I've read many accounts, but one that impressed me in particular um, was a chap, uh, two men were being burnt at the stake in uh, London, and uh, pu public executions were a natural attraction, a bit like a sporting thing event today. Great crowds would gather to witness the event. And the uh, accusers were immediately standing around the, the pile of wood and the pole to which the people were uh, tied to. And as they lit the pyre, these two men started to sing psalms. And the flames rose and they kept on singing. And their accusers couldn't believe it, that they could hear them singing in the midst of the fire. One, one of the men um, passed on fairly quickly. But the second one, he kept on singing. His body was on fire and eventually he reached out and grabbed one of his arms with the other and pulled it free. It had burnt that far through. And he threw it down at the foot of his accusers and just said, Lord, forgive him. And he went back to prayer and eventually turned that prayer into psalm singing again before he died. That's humility. The scripture goes on and it says in that verse, they shall inherit the earth. You know, there is no such thing as an inheritance unless you have a right to that inheritance. There is no such thing as a right unless you have the... There's no such thing as an inheritance unless you have the right to that inheritance. And the only way that we can become and earn that inheritance and have that right to take that inheritance as if we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, a full acknowledgement of him, see our sin and confess it before the Lord. He says, if you do that, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. See, when we have sorrow, we know that, uh, sorrow for our sin, we know that in Jesus Christ that sin is forgiven and washed clean. Therefore, we need not fear the judgment that is going to come in due course of time. Already we have inherited that life in Christ. When you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, it's about verse 6, it says there that uh, in Jesus Christ we have been raised and seated with him in heavenly places. That's today. And the tenses in the Greek verbs in that passage are all in the past. It's a past event. We are raised today as God's people if we believe by faith in Jesus Christ. We are raised and seated with him in eternity today. But we sit here, don't we, in a world that's bound with threats and violence and a lot of good things as well. But intrinsically, in the eyes of God, that eternity has already been granted to us. It only re needs, remains that Jesus Christ come and pull all things to an end. 
What's the idea of inheriting the earth? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 just simply says to us, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We're going to judge the world. We're going to judge the angels. You can't do that unless you own the world. Romans 8 reminds us that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ and the inheritors of a new heaven and a new earth. Why do we suffer as Christians? Obviously because of sin, not our personal sin necessarily. Uh, I mean, if we uh, go down the highway at some enormous speed in our car and the police pull us over and take our licence office and take us to court and all the rest of it, we suffer for our sin. That's not what I'm talking about. Disease overtakes us. It's not our fault. It's just part of life, isn't it? And we understand that. But why do we at times suffer? Is it because we've taken our eyes off the goal of God in Jesus Christ, eternity? Many years ago, I had the privilege of learning to fly. And, uh, and uh, you go and do a few hours, three or four hours in the air and get to use all the various manoeuvres and get to understand the aeroplane. Then the instructor brings you back down to the ground and you do uh, takeoffs and landings. You have to learn that process. And as we were doing that in the initial stages of learning to take off and land, and you have to make visual judgments about things. When we flared the aeroplane, I had a tendency to look out the side and look down to see where, how close the wheel was to the ground. And if it was too high, I'd push forward on the controls. Uh, which was the wrong thing to do, and you uh, bounce, uh, and if you bounce, that's dangerous, but it's recoverable. If you just stand down at Tullamarine and watch the aeroplanes landing, you'll see the airliners do the same thing. They muck up a landing because they take their eyes off the goal. And I was doing this, and I did some doozies. The instructor sits there and says nothing until he reckons you've learnt the lesson. Then he says... Right, this time, when you flare the aircraft, pull the nose up so the main wheels hit the ground first, he said, I want you to stop looking down at the ground and look at the end of the runway. That's where you want to be when you stop rolling. And from the moment I learnt that knack, I won't say every landing was perfect, but they smoothed out. The Christian friends, we like that rather silly student looking down to see how high the wheel is off the ground and taking control when we ought to have our eyes fixed on the goal of God your salvation, eternity are you preparing yourself to judge the angels to judge humanity with Christ because you are heirs with Jesus Christ Amen